Again, to recap, as we talk about rebuilding walls and as we look at this story, it's a story of literal walls um, in Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem. It's a story um, at that time of the, the honor of God um, in the eyes of Nehemiah um, falling in the eyes of the people around Jerusalem, that there was not honor for the Lord because the very walls of, his, of the city where God's presence and temple resided um, were fallen down. He wept over the dishonor of his Lord. The walls not only dishonored, the falling of the walls not only dishonored God, but they allowed the enemy to come in. They allowed for enemy peoples, peoples not of the one true God, to take over the city, to, to have, have rule and reign. They, they, set up a, they set up, it set up a situation where there was a lack of protection, a lack of covering. For the children that were children of Israel that were living in the city. And so Nehemiah wept and he called out to God and he said, God, this should not be. This should not be. Our walls should not be down. As we applied it to our present day, we talked not, not specifically of, of literal stone walls falling down in our lives, but we talked about those walls symbolizing the spiritual walls. Though in the same way that the children of Israel felt like God was dishonored, how have walls in our own life, walls of, that honor God, walls of protection, walls of security, walls of stability, of faith in God, how have they crumbled in our lives? And we, we took an opportunity at the end of the service to say, God, what walls have fallen in my life? What walls are down? What walls in my life that once brought honor are now bringing shame to you? What walls in my life that once stood sturdy speak of decay and abandonment in my life? What walls in my life that once provided a place of security and defense against the attacks of the enemy now leave me vulnerable? What walls have fallen in my life that when I look at my life, I just become utterly overwhelmed to think about how you can restore me once again? That's where we are today. That's where, we're, that's where we start today in our message. But you know, the walls that we're talking about, we start, and I started intentionally last week talking about our own personal walls. But when we get into the rest of the story of Nehemiah, we're going to notice that not only did um, the men and women of Jerusalem start to rebuild their own walls before them, but they also looked to the walls of their neighbors, to their left and the right. When we talk about the walls that have come down in our own lives, we also can talk about what is the wall, what are the walls um, that have fallen in our culture? What are the walls that have fallen in our community? What are the walls that have fallen in our church all around us? Not only, God, am I looking to my own interests, but God, I want my eyes to be open to the interest of those around me. I want to help people rebuild their walls. And I want to rebuild. I want to see the walls of the honor of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the salvation of God, and everything good that comes with it, I want to see those restored in my city and in my culture. Amen? So, I'm, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't take us long to begin to look at broken walls in our culture, does it? I'll just share one, one relevant story because it, 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 it speaks of something symbolic that we're talking about here, but and some of you sent me emails this week about this, and so... Um, many of you are aware of this, but um, for those of you who know, Harvard University was launched in 1639 through a financial gift from a Protestant clergyman, John Harvard, to be a 
Christian university that would equip leaders. Literally, the whole purpose of Harvard was to equip, um, at that time, men to be ministers of the gospel in the United States, to, to bring to them a holistic education to equip them to share the good news of Jesus Christ in their lives as they graduated from that university. That was the intent of Harvard, 1639. And just interestingly enough, however many years later, what is it, four, almost 400 years later, um, this coming, I don't know, this week or next couple of weeks, I, I forgot the date, a satanic black mass reenactment is scheduled to take place in Memorial Hall on Harvard University. Oh, it's tomorrow 8.30. Thanks, Jane. So there's going to be a black mass, and what a a satanic black mass is, is basically um, those who uh, worship Satan. Now, the the satanic club has said, we are no longer, we don't believe in um, literal Satan or God. We're atheists, but we just want to bring awareness to the oppression of all institutions by doing a satanic black mass, which is basically the inversion of a Catholic mass. So it is basically mocking um, a a traditional Catholic mass. They're going to mock a traditional Catholic mass in Memorial Hall on the Harvard campus. So now, interestingly enough, right, that's that's terrible. I mean, it's terrible not to believe in God. It's also terrible not to believe in the devil because he's real and he does have a plan, and it's terrible to worship the devil, and it's terrible to worship anything that is as opposed to God. But something about that story stirs us up, or stirs some of us up. Because we're thinking at the very heart of what intended to be the worship of God, a, a strong and sturdy wall was built at one time at Harvard to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And now, however many years later, the very antithesis of that is being promoted. Now, I start off with that illustration to say it's easy for walls to come down. Now, the walls haven't, they didn't just come down some 400 years later. Amen? The walls have been crumbling over time for many years. Walls have been down. But before we get, we should be alarmed, by the way, before I say this statement. We should be alarmed, and we should be sober, and we should be prayerful. We should be prayerful. But we, we should get no more indignant over that wall coming down than the many other walls that are broken in and around us. Amen? Until we start to look at walls right here, we won't have the power and the authority to deal with walls that are out there. We can't be so indignant and so undone about something over there if we're not indignant and undone about stuff that's falling apart right here. So we say, God, and this is what we said last week, we said, God, take a look at my walls. Before I look at somebody else's walls and before I judge, in this illustration, before I judge Harvard University or whatever's going on there, Lord, take a look at me, Sean Richmond. Give me, an, give me some input. Give me some insight, Lord, about how strong is this wall in me. And Lord, as I attend to my wall, Lord, with compassion and humility and love, help me see what's happening in my church, Lord. 
And help me see what the walls look like here. So that we can say, God, how do I attend to the walls that are among us that I have relationship with that I can begin to rebuild? And Lord, as you strengthen this church and the walls become stronger, and we're going to talk about those walls over the course of these weeks, what those walls look like. But as you strengthen these walls, Lord, use this church to be wall builders in our city. And wall builders in our community. And teach us how to build those walls. And so this morning, we're going to look at one incredibly important way how we rebuild walls in our own lives, in the lives, in those around us that we are walking in humility and love and grace to help in those walls that are beyond these walls of the city. What are those walls that fall down? Walls of deceit? Or what, are the wa- what do the broken walls look like? Deceit, adultery, pornography, greed, selfishness, anger, pride, gossip, gluttony, spiritual apathy, lack of compassion for the lost who don't know Jesus. Those are broken walls. And I just named a few. Walls that are strong, that are the opposite of that, that we're believing for marriage fidelity, sexual wholeness, sacrificial giving, service, grace, humility, self-discipline, spiritual zeal, evangelism, love for the needy. Those are strong walls. Those are walls we want to build. This is what Nehemiah, what we can learn from Nehemiah as we look at this story in the Old Testament. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 4, and I'm going to read and highlight as we go through, as we look at a large passage of Scripture. But verse 4, it says, When I heard these things about the walls of Jerusalem, I sat down and wept, and for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then he acknowledges who God is, and he says, God, let your ears be attentive. Not only to my prayers, but the prayers of the saints that come before you day and night. Remember the instructions that you gave Moses, that if we were unfaithful, you would scatter us. But if we were faithful, you would bring us back into your presence. God is always a God of forgiveness. God is always a God of grace. And there's always an opportunity to come back into God's presence. As long as you are living... Everybody alive in here? Do I have anybody dead? All right. As long as you are alive, and that means every single one of you, there is an opportunity for you to come back and be restored to Jesus. You do not have to remain exiled from God. The invitation is for you. So verse 11, Lord, let your ears be attentive to to the prayer of this servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant, Nehemiah, success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Who was this man? He was, Nehemiah was the cupbearer of the king. Give me favor with the king. Chapter 2. We're going to go ahead and read through this whole passage, and then we'll come back with some application. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, or however you say, Artaxerxes, yeah, Somebody was drunk when they wrote that name. (laughs) When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This cannot this can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. 
But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? And then I prayed to God of heaven. I want to stop here. This brief, silent prayer was backed up by weeks of prayer and fasting. He had now been granted what he was praying for. And now he was in a position of action. That brief prayer are not the kind of prayers that are, the, are not the only kind of prayers we pray. Those brief prayers are the addendums to weeks and months in daily devotions of prayer to Jesus. We'll come back and talk about that in a second. He was careful in his reply. In fact, he was even afraid, and he should be afraid, because when you came into the presence of a king in that day and time, um, you took your life into your hands. Because if you said or did anything inappropriate, you could be demoted at best. You could be killed at worst. So he knew that this moment was a moment of opportunity, but it was an opportunity that came with great risk. If God came through, glory. If God did not come through, maybe death. So this was an act of faith. Verse 5, and I answered the king, so he took the step of faith. And he said, if, I, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, how long will your journey take and when will you, when will you get back? If it, it, pleased the, it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said, said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Did you see faith building in him? All right, I'm talking. The sword has not been pulled out yet. I'm going to keep on going. Give me favor. Let me go back. Okay. Not only let me go back, but give me letters for all those people who are going to oppose me. Okay. okay. And give me money. Give me, give me timber. He went for the whole enchilada. Some of us are just okay with just getting out of Dodge. That would have been good enough. Just let me get back. I'll figure it out when I get to Jerusalem. But he asked for great blessing. He had great faith. And because, now see, this is, I highlighted this, so you highlight it too. This is what Nehemiah thought. He said, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Not because, wow, I really did it. I had a great plan. Or, wow, that king was a great, I mean, he was so kind and good. He was. But what Nehemiah recognized was, man, I've been praying. And I've been asking for this door to open. And I've been calling out day and night. And I've been fasting. And this has been serious. And I've been weeping. This means something to me. And God opened the door. And I recognize that God opened the door. And I'm not going to forget to give Him glory. I'm not going to forget to acknowledge that this would not have happened unless God came through. And this would not have happened if I had not made my request made known to God. 
Because God made it happen. But guess how he made it happen? He made it happen through Nehemiah. So I went to the governor of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So he also protected them. When Sinballat, the, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jack, jackal well, and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall, and finally I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or officials or any others who would be doing their work. I'm going to finish there today. We'll pick up the rest of the story next week. It gets good. We're going to stop there. So the final thing that he did is he found favor with the king. He went on with his mission. And he landed in Jerusalem and he examined what had been told of him by report. What is God wanting to say to me and to you through this passage today? That should be the question every time we read Scripture. We should say, God, what do you have for me today? One of the things I, when I sit down with anybody that I'm discipling or spending time with and talking to them about spending time with the Lord in the Word of God, I say, look in that Word, that passage of Scripture, and figure out what God is saying about Himself. And then figure out what He, ask God what He's saying about you and mankind. And then ask Him, what do you want me to obey out of this passage of Scripture? What does God have for you this morning to obey? We're rebuilding walls. What walls are we believing for to be rebuilt? What are you asking God to rebuild? And so, for just a minute, I'm going to ask you to take inventory again. We're just going to pause. And I'm going to give you space to hear God apart from this babbling preacher. You're going to pray this prayer. Father, Jesus, do I have any broken walls in my life that you, God, want to rebuild? And as you listen to the Lord, and if you are brave enough, write it down. I heard one pen come out. We write it down. We say, God, this is what I felt like I heard you say, or this is what you've been hearing already even before you started praying. These are walls in my life that are down. We write them down. Acknowledge them. We're going to do something about him. What did Nehemiah do? How did Nehemiah start to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem? You say, I don't know. We haven't even seen the walls rebuilt yet. 
We haven't even got to that part of the story, Pastor. That's a trick question. You didn't tell me how to read ahead. Well, you don't. The first way, the first thing that Nehemiah did to rebuild the walls is he was a man of prayer. He prayed for those walls to be rebuilt. Amen? Anything that we want to accomplish that is of eternal value in the kingdom of God always starts with prayer. Always. Ah, well, I'm a doer, Sean. I'm not a prayer. Well, then somebody's praying for your doing. Everything that is accomplished by God that is eternal starts in the place of prayer. Because we first acknowledge that it is God who does it anyway. We call forth what God wants to do, what He can do, and what He will do in prayer. What He wants to do, what He can do, has the power to do, and what He will do in prayer. What are your walls? What does He want to do with your walls? Can He rebuild those walls? Will He rebuild those walls? Those are the steps of faith. Nehemiah prayed. He got on his face, he fasted, and he prayed, prayed, and God began to do a miracle, not in Jerusalem first, but in Babylon, by paving the way, providing the opportunity for all things to come together so that this great endeavor could be accomplished. God needed a leader who was consecrated and set apart for him to lead the people into the rebuilding of the wall. It might be as we look beyond your life now to other walls, it might be that as a man or woman of prayer who is in the position of praying and interceding and being in God's presence, it might be that God says, I am so glad you're praying about this. I'm so glad that you want to see something happen. Guess what? You're my Nehemiah. You're like, oh no, that's a trick. I just like to intercede. I just like to pray. I don't even like to pray. Hopefully this message will change your heart. But it might be that the wall that needs rebuilding in somebody else's life, in this city's life, in this culture's life, is starting with you as the Nehemiah. You're the one who got it in the place of prayer. You're the one that God's heart, your heart was broken because you saw what was happening. You saw in the spirit, you had compassion for that person who was down and out and needed help. And God said, well, you're the person. You prayed. Now go before the king. Well, in this story, it's king. Thank you. Could, could, could you just stand up here beside me and every time I need to say that, you say it. That was beautiful. Everybody give Mary a hand. That was awesome. Artaxerxes. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> but in this context of this passage of Scripture, the king represents our king, doesn't he? You say, well, wait a minute. That king is not a good king. There is a contrast between the earthly throne of Artaxerxes. Is that right? I say that right? Thank you. And the throne of grace in heaven. And I love to make this comparison. But we are in prayer coming to the king, aren't we? We are coming to the one who has authority to grant immunity. To grant safe passage. 
to grant authority for provision, to grant protection, to grant victory in the name of Jesus, right? We have the king of kings, right? So Nehemiah had to wait for an invitation before he could share his burden with the king. Guess what? We don't have to wait anymore if we know Jesus, do we? Hebrews 4 says that the the door has been opened and we can enter into the king's presence at any time that we want to and pray and talk with him. The king um, saw sorrow on Nehemiah's face, but when the Lord sees our hearts, he not only knows our sorrows, but he has compassion for them. He doesn't just see it, he understands it. And he loves us through it. The people that approached the throne of Persia had to be very careful about what they said, lest they anger the king. But God's people can tell him whatever burdens they have. We can talk to God without the fear of death. But God welcomes our conversation. He welcomes our interaction. So what did we learn about Nehemiah? Nehemiah was a man who fasted and who prayed. He was a man who, through his prayers and fasting and daily devotion, was prepared for the opportunity to make his request to the king known. Sometimes we don't know what to ask. We don't know what to pray until we get into his presence. Why do we spend so much time encouraging you to have daily times with Jesus? Because we want you to know who your father is. We want you to know what you have in Jesus. The people who are believers in Jesus, but who never pray, who never read the Bible, who never... Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a burden to get to church. You've just never been in the presence of God for very long. You've not spent much time trying to develop a relationship with Him. And you don't understand that as you get more and more time with Him, He's a good God. He says good things to you. He has wonderful messages for you. He does things in your life. He's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He's a father who forgives all of your sins. He's a comforter when you need comfort. I could go on and on and on. And how do you know that, Sean? You're just making that up. No, I'm not making it up. I'm just telling you about the Word of God. I'm just quoting without quoting Scripture that God has already said to you and me. Nehemiah had that faith and that encouragement because he spent time with Jesus. He spent time with God. He prayed. So that when he was in the presence of the king, he was bold. Because he knew who his God was. It wasn't the king of Persia. It was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. His king trumped that king. Whatever board game that is, he won. So he was able to be specific. Andrew Murray, Murray, a theologian and a devotional writer, says this, If the name of Christ is to be holy at my disposal, so that I may have full command of it for all I will, it must be because I first put myself holy at his disposal, so that he has free and full command of me. It is the abiding in Christ that gives the right and power to use his name with confidence. To Christ... The Father refuses nothing. 
If we know Jesus and we have a friendship with Jesus, when we stand before the King of Kings and say, Father, will you do this in the name of your Son, Jesus? And we have confidence because we know what the Father's like and who Jesus is. Things happen. Things happen. Things happen. So what are we believing for? <clears throat> there was a, a few years back, we had two sweet, um, dear sisters of ours um, in our community of churches called Antioch Ministries that we we're a part of as a church who had been imprisoned in Afghanistan for their faith. They had done the most audacious thing that they could have ever done. They showed a young lady the Jesus film. And that was a terrible crime to tell anybody about Jesus. And so because they were found out, they were taken by the Taliban and they were imprisoned. And I don't know if you know anything about the Taliban, but most prisoners don't come out alive. Especially if it has to do with Christians. There have been numerous, numerous stories over the most recent years of eye doctors and servants. People who are there to help medically and to help heal people in their country who have been brutally murdered um, on the way, to, on, the, on the roads and in the clinics because for one reason, one reason only, they're Christians. When they were put in prison, the only thing that we knew to do as a corporate body of people was to pray. Can I tell you, I'm so proud of our church who prayed. There were nightly, daily, 24-hour prayer meetings going on for these women's lives. And God opened doors. God opened doors before they were freed from prison. Network crews would come and visit the church. Jimmy Cyber, who is the leader of the church, had the opportunity on a couple of occasions to preach the gospel nationally as he told the story of what was going on with these dear sisters' lives, all the while continuing to pray, not just for God to be glorified, but for these women to be freed. Well, the story goes that... Um, um, in the midst of t- people praying, and not just the church um, uh, there locally, but also throughout the world that knew of the sisters that were in, in prison now going globally, people praying for their deliverance, some special ops um, uh, special ops, American ops came in and swooped in during the night and um, through a very dangerous um, uh, Gosh, I'm losing my words. A dangerous operation um, rescued these two women. And they were freed. And when they were rescued, there were prayer meetings going on at Waco at that time. And Jimmy Seibert was told, do you, what, do you, what do you want to say? He said, what do you mean what do I want to say? And he said, well, the women have just been freed. He said, I need to call the church. And so they called the church, and within a matter of minutes, thousands of people we're in the auditorium celebrating and rejoicing, praising God for what God had done to the answer of prayer. Not because of some wonderful military operation did they believe they were rescued, but the rescue came not because of those men, but because Jesus said, they're free. I want to be that kind of people, don't you? I want to be the kind of people that believe that when we pray, things happen. That when we walk with Jesus and know the King, that when we stand in His presence, we have the boldness to ask 
for what we want in God answers, in the area of deliverance from sin, in the area of healing, in the area of revival and salvation, in the area, whatever area is troubling you, in the area of depression, discouragement, and hopelessness, that whatever wall or place where we are needing the help of God, we have the authority and the grace to step in and pray. Would you stand up with me and let's begin that place of prayer.